This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today, college and jobs. Our panelists are Albert Fu from Cutstown University, Colby King from the University of South Carolina Upstate, and Michelle Corbin from Worcester State University. Our discussion was recorded on February 13th, 2020. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You guys want to start off and uh, just uh, uh, introduce yourselves to everybody. Albert, you want to start off? You're the you're the tweeter who got this episode rolling. So, Hi, I'm uh, Albert from Kutztown uh, University. Um, we are a regional state campus in Pennsylvania. We are about an hour and a half uh, northwest from Philadelphia in lovely Amish country. Very nice. And then you want to just say a little bit about what you do uh, in Cutstown, what you what your interests are, what you're about? I'm an urban sociologist and an environmental sociologist, and that's generally what I teach. Okay, cool. All right, uh, Colby? Yeah, I'm Colby King. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of South Carolina Upstate. That's in Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, which is along I-85, about halfway between Charlotte and Atlanta, uh, we have about 6,000 students. Uh, we're a regional comprehensive university like Cutstown and Worcester. And we have a high proportion of first-generation working-class students, uh, just like these other campuses do, too. Um, so my main areas of focus are urban sociology and social inequality. For reference, I can mention that I'm also a member of the ASA Task Force on uh, First-Generation and Working-Class Persons in Sociology. Yeah and an area editor uh, in social inequality for trails. Let's get, I want to ask you about the first gen project after, but first, mm -hmm. uh, Michelle, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So Michelle Corbin, and I'm at Worcester State University, which is in central Massachusetts, which is right in the middle of the state. So it's about an hour and a half west of Boston, and then about an hour and a half east of what is called Western Mass, which is where all the baby ivies are. So we're like in the education state, but really kind of in the middle of, fly of the flyover of mm -hmm. Massachusetts. Worcester State University is kind of at this intersection of the rural farm spaces in the middle of the country. And then Worcester itself is the second largest city actually in New England with a high proportion of black, brown, and immigrant students. So it's really kind of at this intersection. It's like an urban university while simultaneously serving a kind of white rural population. We have uh, about six to 7,000 students. A majority of our students are also uh, first generation to college students. So it sounds similar to the schools um, that Albert and Colby are talking about. For myself, I'm a feminist sociologist. I also have a graduate certificate in women's studies. So my work has always really been at the intersection of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Most of my teaching really centers on inequality around race, class, gender, and sexuality. Um, and in part, my formal scholarship is in sociology of knowledge. Since I have been in the belly of the beast at a regional comprehensive institution in the middle of increasing austerity, uh -huh. I have turned my research really to what I call the politics of public higher education and really uh -huh. looking at public higher education institutions as a really fraught place for um, growing inequality. And now the, the ball for this panel got rolling 
with a, a, a tweet by Albert that really struck a chord with me because I also teach at a, a similar school. It's uh, urban, but we're not one of the fancy schools. We teach people who are like most Americans, right? From a household earning like $30,000 to $70,000, like the bulk of the population. And this really resonated with me. Albert, do you want to start us off by uh, reading your tweet and then maybe explaining sort of your your reactions behind it, the underlying thoughts? Um, sure. So uh, I saw this uh, tweet by a Canadian economist, um, Todd Hirsch, which said, university education should not be about jobs. It should be about expanding the mind, critical thinking, and learning how to learn. To, to think otherwise about our university system is missing the point and purpose. And um, I retweeted that saying, well, why can't it be both? Mm-hmm. Uh, following that up by saying, well, you know, the anti-job view is kind of elitist. Um, I mentioned I'm a second-gen immigrant who teaches a lot of first-gen students, and I went to college to open up career opportunities, and as do most of my students. But Tim Haney, um, another sociologist, mentioned that uh, Todd Hirsch's uh, tweet was in response to um, a push by politicians in Canada to basically um, make them all vote tech and uh, really invested in fossil fuels. So, so there, there was some context to um, that original tweet that I retweeted. Okay. But at the same time, I, I really do feel like there has been this kind of internal debate uh, in multiple areas of higher education where there is this push that uh, as a result of austerity, neoliberalism, to make all institutions of higher ed vote, vote tech. Mm-hmm. which I'm not for. At the same time, there's another side which is consistently preaching the benefits of the liberal arts, which is something that I am for. However, I do feel like there should be a balance between the two sides. Um, I, I do think that we're not in a strong position with our students, um, the general sort of populace, and we say, well, what we do is just teaching students how to learn, or that it's just about critical thinking. There does have to be skills involved, and uh, I do think that we need to probably do more to guide our students towards viable careers, whatever that might might mean, while also instilling um, critical thinking, critical thought, appreciation for different perspectives, arts, humanities, and all that. I interacted uh, with Albert's tweets kind of right away when I saw them pop up on Twitter. Um, I agreed with his uh, view that it strikes as that this these sentiments strike as elitist. And also I concur with his argument that it really needs to be both. Um, it's, I think that that the jobs or the indifference to jobs view uh is not just elitist, but also unrealistic in a way. And mm-hmm. obviously we um, in higher ed sometimes get accused of being out of touch with reality, right? Uh, often inaccurately, um, but we want to be careful to avoid that. Um, so Albert asked, why not both? And I just wanted to underscore that I think it needs to be both. Um, so all three of us on the panel here, really all four of us, um, as you describe your institution, um, our institutions, these regional comprehensive universities, have a higher proportion of students um, and also faculty and staff, really, from working class and first-gen backgrounds, um, also representing other historically marginalized groups. And so financial concerns for these people that participate in our institutions as students and otherwise are um, the 
the reason many are here um, is because our institutions represent an affordable, accessible option for higher ed. And with declining public investment in public higher ed, students from uh, working class and first gen backgrounds have to be careful. Um, my students, I know, are very keenly aware that the risks and burdens of higher ed are riskier and more burdensome for them. Um, most of our students are uh, already working one or more jobs, right? So, of course, yeah. they're going to be concerned about jobs and what prospects, what job prospects are in the future for them. So, as I see it, as I see it, as long as our students are taking on student loan debt and dealing with class cultural mismatch on campus and mm-hmm. breakaway guilt at home, uh, we got to do both, right? Um, just like Albert was asking. Um, we got to follow through on the promise of higher ed um, if we're going to uphold the missions of access and equity, right? We got to do both for our students. Michelle, what was your first reaction? To your, I mean, this isn't your first reaction because it's something we hear all the time, right? Like, <laughs> uh, school's not about jobs. What's your reaction to this sort of discussion? I really have um, conflicted feeling. Well, I guess there's several angles that I can take up. I actually at the place where I am, actually am concerned about the vocationalization of public higher education. And so okay. I think situating where is this idea coming from is really important. Mm-hmm. So while I understand that when people from Harvard or people from elite institutions sort of have this poo-poo attitude that there should be no concern with jobs in the you know ivory tower, I can understand the elitist history of that. But I also want to point out that when they're speaking from their positionality, the liberal arts are not under a threat there. They don't literally have to concern themselves with jobs. (laughs) But then to say that all claims that try to defend the liberal arts or to say that college should not be reduced to drop training are really only elitist, I think really erases a very broad history of social movements. And so I think if if we ask the question, what is the promise of public higher education? What is the legacy of access? And I'm writing a a sabbatical project on this. Access to what? First generation Mm -hmm. to what kind of college? And so for Mm -hmm. myself as a women's studies scholar, I look to how did women, how did poor people, how did black and brown people, how did working class people open up the doorway to public higher education And what was the promise? What were we fighting for? Mm -hmm. And so I just went back and I was looking with my students at W.E.B. Du Bois. And in his book, The Souls of Black Folks, he has this chapter on of the training of black men. Mm -hmm. And this whole argument between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington was really the same argument that we're having today. Can you tell us a little bit about it? For those of us who, you know, didn't catch this in grad school, can you just give give us the quick sort of rendering of it, the discussion? The quick and dirty was Booker T. Washington was sort of um, advocating for what he called industrial schools and arguing that the road to liberation for Black people was really about um, uh, vocational training up, uh, upward mobility in terms of economic upward mobility. And W.E.B. Du Bois was pushing back against that and saying that what they needed was um, a deeper form of education, what he sometimes called real education. He had this quote in his Niagara speech, which was the sort of precursor to the NAACP, where he said, we demand real education for our children, not that they be trained to be useful or to be servants. And so their argument was, should we provide vocational training? 
training to black folks so that they can have economic upward mobility. And then that will be the pathway to liberation. Or what Du Bois was saying was that we needed the liberal arts and we needed culture and we needed education. Being the first black man to get a PhD from Harvard University and becoming a preeminent sociologist who took the tools of the liberal arts in order to make changes and to build a civil rights movement. So that's sort of what I mean. This is an old argument. And there are civil rights advocates. And I was reading Jane Addams, who's an early sociologist, who was arguing for what we would maybe now loosely call a liberal arts education as a mechanism of liberation of working class people. If we look Mm -hmm. at the history of women's studies, black studies, ethnic studies, all of them were born out of social movements demanding a, a deep curricular change of the university. And so if we just say that any sort of um, defense of critical thinking or the liberal arts, that it should only really be focused on jobs training because people are broke. And if we just say that's always elitist, it's not always elitist. Mm-hmm. So my question is, how do we keep inside this conversation the demands for racial justice and gender justice that say, We have always been given vocational training. We have always been trained to be useful to rich people. So in the context of neoliberal austerity, which begins to transform all of public education into a sort of vocational training to make it us useful for whatever capitalist class happens to be ascendant, I don't, that really troubles me. We do deserve more than job training. I'd like to just mention something. Um, When we say liberal arts, what do we mean? Mm -hmm. Because, I I mean, back in the Middle Ages, when the concept of the liberal arts came up, it was like seven fields, um, included, uh, I think, geometry and astronomy. Mm. And even to this day, when we say liberal arts, does it include the sciences? It depends on the history of the institution. And really, um, the sciences don't get the sort of crap like that um, maybe the social sciences and the humanities really get. So I think there is this kind of thing that, I agree with everything that you're saying, but then when we say liberal arts, what's actually encompassed in it, in addition to all the different fields that you've actually um, just just mentioned. So that's just one thing that I I wanted to kind of toss out there in terms of Mm -hmm. the history of the term and its inconsistent usage uh, in many institutions. Can we take that up? Like, what is when we say we don't want college to just be job training, what exactly are we talking about in terms of lessons that we are conveying to young people? What are the non-job training lessons that they need to be taught that would not be in the job training conception of a university? You know, I teach a sociology of work and organizations course, and we talk about how uh, every generation, if we um, follow generations or even just every decade, we see workers being in situations where they're changing careers more frequently throughout the 30 to 40 years of of a typical working career. Mm -hmm. And so we want, you know, one thing that an education is supposed to do is to provide a buffer against um, and some protection against the risks of a tumultuous labor market, right? Um, So you're not just trained to do one specific job in one specific way, but that you're better able to adapt and make your own path, um, maybe have some greater agency over your jobs and careers through your lifetime. So when I think about what a college degree is supposed to be about, maybe this comes from my experience as a first-generation college student, feeling myself still as a working-class academic, someone from a working-class background, 
to me, there's like these levels or stages of what an education can be. The first is job training. Um, that's one thing, right? Knowing how to push the button. Um, but the second thing is that broader education uh, that can be, you know, some of these sort of vague concepts like uh, critical thinking, right, or liberal arts. But that what that really does is promote your ability to uh, endure the risks of uh, the labor market. But then I also think that we often forget that a college degree is about a lot more than just the degree itself. And I'm always emphasizing to my students how the degree isn't just about the GPA and the classes you passed and the major that you majored in. It's about that. Um, you get that credential, but it's also about the social network that you build while you're on campus. It's about the letters of reference you're able to get from your faculty and your peers on campus and the way your campus may or may not connect you with uh, employers and other opportunities out there when you graduate. Um, all of those are very important, and I think we uh, too often overlook that. And I think students aren't always uh, aware of or conscious of this as a, a thing that comes along with the college degree. So I try to emphasize that uh, to them, that it's about all of these things uh, uh, together. And I also highlight to students, too, because of that, that for, you know, we as sociologists understand that people generally live in very segregated situations. Uh, we live racially segregated lives and class segregated lives um, in our neighborhoods, in our work, uh, the way we move about our communities. For the bulk of our students, especially at regional comprehensive universities where there's a high proportion of first-gen and working-class students and a lot of minority students, these social spaces are the most diverse social spaces that the students will pass through in their lives. And so it's, it presents, in a way, um, each of us contribute to uh, that resource on our college campuses, right? And each of the students contribute to that value, too. Um, so I think it's really important not to overlook that college provides all of that, right? The, the four-year college degree isn't just a degree. It's access to all of those other things as well, right? I guess I'll weigh on this as well. Yeah. When we think about, you know, the liberal arts, which can be a term that gets tossed around. But for me, I keep coming back to we could talk about critical pedagogy. We could talk about radical pedagogy. We could even go right back to C. Wright Mills and talk about the sociological imagination and that the purpose of a sociological education is to understand the relationship between history and biography. We could go back to a sort of Marxism, which talks about understanding the conditions of our lives. I was thinking about, or I was reading Paulo Freire the other day, and I really love his question, which when he was asked to, you know, sort of implement education in Brazil and wrote the pedagogy of the oppressed. And his question was, well, what does it mean to bring literacy to peasants? And you can do that in such a way where it's a project of indoctrination. It's a project where you just prepare workers for whatever the local economy is, or it can be liberatory or bell hook who also works in critical pedagogy, who talks about in Black communities, education as a practice of freedom. Mm -hmm. And what that meant, I think, in all those spaces is in part so that people can see that they are part of a larger structure, so that they expand their political consciousness and understand the circumstances of their society. And then even if you go back to Dewey to talk about a democratic project where you are trained as an active and informed citizen in order to better 
transform a society towards more egalitarian values. And so I think, you know, the liberal arts gets tossed around, but I just keep coming back to, I, I believe in education as a practice of freedom, education as a liberatory project. And so while we can certainly include as part of that project, helping our students grapple with work and grapple with the economy and grapple with jobs, which I think that we you know, that has to be part of our conversation because any kind of education as a practice of freedom, and this again is Paulo Freire, grounds the conversations in the lives and conditions of the oppressed. And so our students are largely oppressed. And so work will, of course, be part of that conversation. But I sometimes mm -hmm. joke, not really joking with my students, like people say, oh, well, what are they going to do with a sociology degree? And I always say, well, they're going to do what everybody else does, work at Dunkin' Donuts. But at least my students are going to know why they work at Dunkin' Donuts, and they're going to understand that it's not their fault, and it's not their family's fault, and it's not their community's fault, and they are going to be better equipped to work within their communities to begin to say, why are we all trapped at Dunkin' Donuts? And so I guess for me, I'm always going to ground this conversation in what would it mean to maintain that liberatory practice of freedom within our institutions? And I think it's more important at places where we're working with first generation and working class students whose aspirations have been so narrowed and they're so economically terrified that they barely mm -hmm. have the space for a larger vision. And so if we already give up on those aspirations, I actually think we do a disservice to the spaces that we're still trying to carve out for oppressed people. First of all, I just want to un underscore uh, for, for Michelle, she was smiling with the Dunkin' Donut comment. It's men in tongue and cheek. You can't see that when you're listening on the radio. So just to, <laughs> just to be sure, I'm sure Michelle has no intention of actually sending her students to Dunkin' Donuts for her careers. But, so just sometimes uh, you got to make sure about that. But in all seriousness, in all seriousness, how like has this issue, the balancing of liberal arts or let's say more uh, less vocational aspirations and the demands of vocational, you know, need to prepare your students vocationally. Has that ever come up when you're doing in committee meetings, when you're planning curricula? Uh, like, how does this tension manifest in, in your job at an institution that serves primarily first gen and, uh, you know, working class uh, students? Well, coincidentally, um, yesterday, I had a student come by debating whether or not she wanted to declare sociology as a major. Mm -hmm. She disclosed she was a first gen student, and she told me a story about how um, nursing, uh, traditional sort of vocation that would be well respected mm -hmm. amongst her family was mm -hmm. something she ultimately decided was not for her and she um realized that sociology had this kind of liberating potential she's like i'm pissed off all the time now i know why i'm pissed off all the time mm. but we did have to actually sit and walk through career paths for her mm -hmm. like, and, and it wasn't it was it's more of a sitting around brainstorming of what she wanted to do with herself Mm. I didn't, I wasn't pushing her too hard, I think, to declare so. Um, but uh, it, it was about brainstorming so that she could plan out careers as well as uh, know what to tell her parents when she inevitably had to tell them that uh, she gave up nursing to become a social major. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, these things definitely come up all the time. I, I do, I do think that the tough part is getting caught in the, the battle between the 
humanities, full-on liberal arts, critical thinking folks who I, I love and all, but like sometimes they forget you know, that the jobs do matter. And then yeah. the administrators and some of the more vocational programs um, that are like, no, we're, we're, we're doing the real work on behalf of our students. We're the ones trying to get our students jobs. It's like, no, like it's mm-hmm. should be both. You know, I'm in favor of a non-vocationally oriented degree so long as you do not tell your students that you are preparing them for work because in my view that's deceptive so if you design a project where you are explicit you say i will not train you for anything you will not emerge from this program especially qualified in any field of work you know we're not preparing you to compete in a job market come i feel that's fair however one concern that i have is when departments sort of talk out of both sides of their mouths like before the kids enroll it's like look at the careers that you can do in sociology and then after they've dedicated a semester or two they're like ah i was just kidding you're not training me for anything because you know like the way i see it and correct me if i'm wrong or please push back on me for my students college is a massive investment like even at the low rates of my public school It's a massive investment and a critical life choice. And they're seeing this as something that they're putting there. It's a basket that they're putting their eggs in on the way to hoping for the type of stability that they want for themselves or the upper middle class livelihood that they aspire to. And I just feel like there has to be some truth in advertising if a department is going to adopt this anti-vocational position. What's your reaction to that, that view? I actually wanted to raise this question and I would take it out further than just the department. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we have the, accepted the premise that getting an undergraduate degree leads to jobs. Mm-hmm. All of our students, I talk about this a lot with my students, actually, they are all 99% of them there because they've been told you go to college and you get a good job and you make decent money and it's your entree to the middle class. So mm-hmm. we are actually now all just implicitly assuming that that is true. I'm not convinced, actually. Like, I've, you know, you start to look at the data. And if it was true that getting a college degree was the ticket to upward mobility, we would be able to see that in the data. And I was just looking at some of the data. And what we see is that enrollments and degree attainment are at historic highs for black people, for brown people, for working class people, for all kinds of people. And yet their class mobility is at record lows. We have had almost no gains in the black wealth, in poverty rates, in child poverty. We now have the lowest class mobility in the developed world. And so I would ask us, not just at the department level, and I agree with you, which is why I talk to my students about this. I sometimes joke that I feel like I work at Countrywide University selling subprime degrees to impoverished people with the premise that it's going to be their ticket to ride. And so my question, first of all, is we better know it's true, department aside, and I'm not convinced it is true. And second of all, where has this premise come from? And Mm -hmm. one of my concerns, and I just, I I landed on this in writing up my notes for this, and I want to think about it more, is that has education become the new welfare to work? Mm -hmm. 
So there are no jobs, which is why our students are economically terrified. And so we say, well, just go get a degree and you'll be fine. All they need is skills. All they need is a particular piece of paper. But if there's no more money in the economy, if there's no more jobs out there for them to get, I'm not really joking. They do go back to Dunkin' Donuts. And because we don't address the structural inequality and we frame it as a skills deficit, First of all, I don't know if it's true. And second of all, I worry that we're actually reinforcing a narrative kind of like welfare to work that says mm-hmm. that the university can solve structural inequality and poverty. So are we, in fact, being bamboozled by buying into that narrative? Can I offer uh, my personal story as maybe an anecdote that illustrates what Michelle's talking about here? And I know Albert reflected a little bit on the Twitter thread about his background and experiences. And uh, so his story might be relevant, too. But Uh, In my social inequality classes, when we talk about social class and how we identify social class, I often use myself as an example because I think I'm a complicated case. And it has everything to do with what Michelle's talking about, about the extent to which the promise of uh, social mobility through higher education may or may not get fulfilled. Right. Um, So I was the first person in my family to get a four year college degree. I was the smart one and was uh, heavily encouraged to go to the best school I could get scholarships for and uh, ended up going to a school that had a bunch of great teachers, uh, a bunch of great professors. But I thought I had a full ride and I did my first year uh, and tuition. It was a small liberal arts college and tuition went up every year and the scholarships did not. And I ended up graduating with $25,000 in student loan debt. Then I went to graduate school and I had an assistantship and I uh, taught and did research and um, snuck in a few jobs on the side too uh, to try to um, balance my financial situation. But I still took on a good amount of debt to the point today that I have uh, a level of student loan debt that is higher than my annual salary has ever been. And I am a success story, right? I'm a tenure track sociology professor. I get uh, benefits and, uh, you know, uh, a retirement plan and all of this. And um, so in the classroom, when we're talking about when I offer myself as an example here with my students, I say, you know, by all outward symbols, I would look middle class, right? I am married. I uh, have a kid. We rent a, a three bedroom, two bathroom house, right? Um, I, we, my wife and I each have our own cars. We drive to work. Uh, my income is uh, relatively stable and, and reasonably good. And uh, I, you know, get to dress professionally and work in an office. And by all these indicators, I outwardly look middle class in addition to having the PhD and all these things, right? Um, but even though I'm paying a certain percentage of my income every month to pay down my student loan debt, I'm really only servicing the interest. And my actual balance has not diminished at all in the six or more years that I've been paying off my student loans. And uh, with all that debt, it like it practically for us, it really changes our decision making as far as uh, renting or owning and uh, where we're, what neighborhoods we're uh, going to uh, look to live in and all these things. But also, I think the outward symbols then obscure my actual class position, right? Um, it, mm. it obscures the reality that I was only able to be so uh, successful uh, because I w- was willing to take on the risks of all this debt burden, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the opportunity cost of the time invested in, in the higher education. So where does that where does that leave things for uh, for students that are trying to make these decisions about? where they're investing their time and their money um, as they uh, are, uh, you know, 
being uh, given a lot of promises about the possibilities of social mobility and secure jobs, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but also being asked to shoulder a lot of burdens and a lot of costs along the way to get there. I think, I think there is. So I think the research on the returns to college is complicated. In my own research, I know college graduates are substantially better off a few decades after college. However, that the premium to college is dropping as more people get college educations. And there is some question as to whether the college effect is independent or whether like uh, the certain type of kid who goes through college and does well would also do well had they not going to go, gone to college. But it is very expensive. There are some ways that departments get around this. Like uh, what's very interesting in this is that uh, it turns out that like I'm getting a sense that I'm the most fervent vocational oriented teacher among the four of us <laughs> where I've advocated for, uh, you know, removing a, our classical theory requirements and, mm -hmm. uh, and transforming our sociology degree into one that is mostly methodological training. So we teach them how to interview. We teach them how to conduct qualitative research and run numbers and get better mm -hmm. at data analysis. And our view was that, or at least my view, I won't speak for everybody. My view was that any particular claim that they might come up with about, you know, social problems, teaching the methodology would give them the equipment to verify the claim. It would give them the ability to think through it. And that methodology is, in fact, a very marketable skill that can be transferred. And that's sort of how we've negotiated it, I think, is by taking our first-gen students who absolutely want jobs. Like, if you say to my students, this won't get you a job, they're going to be like, thank you very much. I need to find a program that will help me somehow. And uh, the way that we've adapted to it is to go whole hog on methods. But I can see the, uh, well, I won't even preempt the criticism. I'd rather hear it. Uh, what's your reaction to that way of approaching the vocation versus liberal arts education for first gen and working class students? What's your view? I'm not, I mean, if we look at the departments who can legitimately say this credential leads to a job, mm. they should go to trade school. Okay. They, they should go to the nursing department. They should maybe criminal justice. Maybe if you get your teaching certificate, that's tightly tied to an actual occupational category. And then of course, even there, because part of, for me, this whole conversation is about the erosion of public education more broadly. Your average teacher only stays in that position for five years and it's the lowest paid profession for the level of education. And so I guess my, I'm always wanting to just bring us back out to the broader question. I don't know if any department other than those narrow professions can actually make the claim that this piece of paper is going to tightly lead you to a job. Mm -hmm. And so for me as a sociologist, I'm not, I never say to my students that it doesn't matter that you don't get jobs, but because I, when I look at the data and I see that they have the weakest middle class since like the 19th century and the rates of unemployment and the rates of hardship that they're experiencing, I actually work with them so that they can understand, first of all, why do you think you go to college to get a job? We talk about like, well, what does it mean to be first generation in your family? Like you're the first of all your people? 
Like, well, something big has happened. Let's understand that. And so again, going back almost to the roots of sociology, I want them to help understand their economic position or their mm-hmm. position as, as racialized minorities, because I think that actually helps them to navigate these greater economic questions. And I am not convinced that that college in general, other than in some narrow circumstances, is leading to those jobs. And I think that really is going to cause us to have to ask ourselves hard questions because in the new corporate neoliberal university, if you can't justify yourself with enrollments, then you get your courses cut. This is also having a devastating impact on women's studies, black studies, Africana studies, because we can't justify ourselves in those market-based terminology Mm -hmm. so to the extent that we embrace i mean the philosophy department is trying to justify itself on (laughs) terminology and so i worry that we're we're losing even by adopting their metrics yeah the the problem is less the practicality of a sociology degree i think and more the uh, the disinvestment from public education and the increasing mm-hmm. cost of a college degree because it ups the risks and the burdens for everyone coming in from a uh, less, uh, literally less fortunate background, right? Yeah. I sometimes bring this up with my students um, because as deeply committed I am to the idea of regional universities serving their local uh, communities, mm. The problem is a lot of these, at least in Pennsylvania, I'm sure it is in other states as well, a lot of these schools are located in places that have seen significant population decline. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, like a a degree from a university, one of these universities, and if you choose to stay in the community, there's there's just not going to be a job. Like like the towns are barely holding on. And so, yeah, as Michelle was kind of pointing out, I mean, there are larger sort of structural issues um, that really affect the concept of employment, broadly speaking. Um, if there are no jobs, then what good is it? I mean, I don't want to say no. I mean, like, if there are no jobs, then the paper that you get when you come out of college, even if it is um, a vocational degree, um, like criminal justice or, or um, social work or education, there's not going to be jobs either, either way. Okay, now I'm completely seeing the bias in my worldview, because like, (laughs) I'm sure you also find the case, my students will not leave their community upon graduation. They are, they have a lot of ties. You know, I remember in graduate, remember when we were in graduate school, they're like, you got to be ready to live anywhere. And you were like, okay, I'll do that. They are not like that. Yep. And now I'm beginning to understand the difference between the two of us, because if I'm teaching in some neighborhood, if my borough is like New York City, there still are jobs that we can train them for, for these skills. And so there is a practical avenue. But you're right. I never thought about that. Uh, if your town has been economically destroyed and staying close to kin and community is a primary goal or like necessity in life, then you're right. It doesn't matter what you study because you're just going to take whatever is available when it pops up. Am I gathering this correctly? This is like a real light is turning on in my head about that. Yeah, um, a lot of my students, uh, a lot of my really good students are like Oro GPA students that are thinking grad school. Yeah. They don't want to go to the big city to go to grad school. They, they want to find, they want to get a master's degree here and I you know it's not I don't want to knock our programs or anything like that but I'm like you should be expanding your horizons you should be going to another institution just even for networking uh, from the standpoint of networking and 
a lot of these students are like, no, we want to, we want to stay close to family. Um, we're from small towns. We don't want to go to the big city, which is only an hour and a half away. But you know, that's something that is deeply yeah. frightening to them. Yeah. And well, yeah, go, go ahead, Michelle. I was going to also say that it's not just provincialism because yeah. those of us who have spent time in the metropolis sometimes view this as this, and it's a, and it's another form of elitism, as mm-hmm. a sort of provincialism, and they just don't want to expand their horizons. And they can equally say to us that we've lost all loyalty and sense of place, and don't know how to yeah. be a member of a community. Yeah. <laughs> and so I want to emphasize that, and then I also want to emphasize that in most cases it's really a matter of necessity. It's just like yeah. economic necessity. New Yorkers yeah. can't afford to live in New York, yeah. let alone anybody else. Yeah. And so like the cost, especially as tuition has gotten sky high and as cities have become virtually uninhabitable um, for anybody who doesn't have a lot of capital to, to kind of bring with them, it's just not possible for our students to pack up and move to a major metropolitan area and relying on that kinship network is a matter of survival and not just provincialism. Yeah. And and I would also ask a question, um, Joseph, about you're at Cooney. Yeah. I think this would be a really good data project, which is um, like when we look, like you were saying about education is still kind of holding steady as a life lifelong advantage over non-college educated. But you also have to separate out that rich people are more likely to get degrees. So is it just that what we're picking up is that rich people tend to stay richer a selection effect. Yeah. yeah. Or is it that the, co- you know, even poor or working class people who succeed in getting the piece of paper are actually translating that into economic gains? And given that New York is one of the most unequal cities in the country, I would actually be really curious to see the data about like which of your students are getting jobs. Is it leading to economic upward mobility? Because all the macro indicators mm-hmm. point to the fact that it doesn't actually seem to be working. Yeah, I on that note, and I, I'm sure Joseph might want to uh, react too, but I just want to give a shout out to an article by Allison Hurst in the journal Working Class Studies. Uh, I can pull up the exact uh, citation information here in a second, but she was reworking college ranking systems uh, with a greater emphasis on cost and social mobility. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting paper. It's an open access journal, so anyone can download it and take a look. Um, I think it's worth a read and relevant to this conversation for sure. Maybe we can put it a link to it in show notes or something. You know, this is, so this is very illuminating. You know, I had never thought about this local market dynamic and how it could feed into your teaching philosophies or your views on education. So what do you do with when you serve a community that has been traditionally disadvantaged and seems locked into a life that just happens to be taking place in an economically distressed area, right? Because there's more to life than economics. People aren't going to ditch their family or you know, breakup or any of that. People have to live their lives and economics has to fit in that. So what, what do you do? Like, how do you serve these people? Well, I'm I'm not sure it's just about uh, economically depressed regions. And I think uh, Michelle's comments kind of got to this, right? There's a commonality between what Albert's describing in the Kutztown area and what Michelle's describing in the Boston area, where it's just the, the labor market and pay wages don't match the cost of living. Yeah. And the opportunities just there are not enough there or they don't pay well enough. 
Uh, when I taught at Bridgewater State, this was a, situ- a concern of a lot mm-hmm. of students that it's a big booming city, but they had most likely grown up outside of the city itself and could not imagine being able to afford moving into the city unless they were able to like inherit a house from an uncle or something, yeah. right? So it's it's not just economically depressed places, but also places where the cost of living is so high that it uh, imposes real strains on uh, labor market possibilities and economic opportunities um, where, where the uh, inequality is really great, um, really high. Uh, I, I think we're a little bit more fortunate here in a way in, in we're kind of in the Sunbelt area, relatively booming uh, set of uh, manufacturers and other kinds of industry uh, here between the Spartanburg and Greenville area. So a lot of students at Upstate plan to stay local for the same reasons. They want to be close to family and connected to kins mm-hmm. and friends, uh, kin and friends. But, you know, and, and I emphasize to them, one of the things I'm really excited about is them, like, I'm going to be living in this community for the next 30 years too, right? And I'm excited to have more sociology students graduating into the community and uh, changing the way our community operates, the way our cities uh, operate the way our uh, local organizations function, right? Um, yeah. We're going to be living in the same community together. They're going to be shaping the community that we're uh, raising our, our, my wife and I are raising our kid in, right? And huh. Um, huh. so uh, it's one of the values of teaching at a regional comprehensive, but, uh, you know, it's also like the characteristics of place are very relevant to all of us, I think. Yeah. For myself, this question, um, I, I keep being drawn back to the histories of communities of struggle and how they have thought about education. And I happen to have been reading W.E.B. Du Bois most recently, but or, or Bell Hooks, who was talking about the history of education and Black struggle. And I think when you look at that history, many of the, the advocates of greater education for Black people didn't think that most of those Black students would then experience upward mobility and become highly successful. Like They just didn't conceptualize it as what is sometimes called a mechanism of ladder mobility. They understood that you could receive an education and stay in slavery and stay in poverty and have to still live your life in the Jim Crow South. And so education was both a project of freedom and a project of emancipation, both at the individual level to help you better survive and stay intact in the side inside of a brutal political system that you probably wouldn't see changed in your lifetime. And it was a project, and, and we're losing this in the neoliberal university, right? That it's not about individual upward mobility, it's about collective struggle. And so Du Bois talked about how when they created colleges, the early black colleges, it was to train teachers so that the black teachers should go, go back into black communities and work on a project of racial uplift and community organizing and to better the lives of Black people. And so for me, I am concerned as, as we are now in a period of inequality that we haven't seen from the, since the Great Depression, like escalating mm-hmm. inequality. Do I believe that we are going to see all the people, all of my students, they are facing a grim economic future? And I don't know if our colleges are going to get them out of that. But I do think that education can be a powerful tool for how to survive inside Mm -hmm. systems of profound exploitation. It's tough. I mean, you know, all four of us, we walk into classrooms, um, you know, every day and it is a struggle. It's, it's tough because we want the best for our students. 
um, knowing full well that it is a very, very difficult battle for the students on a day-to-day level just to uh, get through, you know, you know, the class, the, the day, yeah. the semester, the, the academic year. As such, I mean, as a result, that's kind of why I want to, I, I wanted the why can't it be both approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That there are small victories and there are big victories. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, little things to get students to think about how they can be, unfortunately, I know this is like uh, very business-oriented, be more marketable uh, out <laughs> there. Um if I if I can actually help somebody get some degree some means of employment so that uh, they can pay the bills or you know pay some of the bills, that's 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 a little victory or maybe a big victory in, in a lot of ways. Mm. If I can get them to think more widely uh, and deeply about what is going on in their communities and around the world, I consider that a victory. And I, I, maybe this is just what we do as educators. We, we look for those little things that we can um, achieve and, and for ourselves but as educators, but also for our students. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Albert Fu of Cutstown, Colby King of the University of South Carolina Upstate, and Michelle Corbin of Worcester State University. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Socianex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.